This is a UC Public Policy Channel program from the Goldman School of Public Policy at UC Berkeley. Visit us at www.uctv.tv/public-policy for more discussion on solutions for the good of all. Six days, is it, am I right? I've lost count. Six days left. <laughs> um, every day feels more anxious. I don't know if all of you have been sleeping. I have not. <laughs> Such an intense time to be alive. Um, but we are so super lucky with six days left to have Professor Ian Haney Lopez with us um, today. Uh, you know, I'm I'm so fortunate to call. Uh, Professor Lopez, a friend and a colleague, really respect and admire his work so much. Um, he teaches here at UC Berkeley at the law school in the area of race and constitutional law. He's one of the nation's leading thinkers on racism and how racism has evolved since the civil, civil rights movement. Um, and he, as you know, wrote the book that you read, Merge Left, but prior to that wrote Dog Whistle Politics, How Coded Racial Appeals Have Reinvented Racism and Wrecked the Middle Class. Um, he has co-chaired the AFL-CIO's Advisory Council on Race and Economic Justice and co-founded the Race Class Narrative Project, which is really the foundation for this great book that you just read. Um, he is the Chief Justice Earl Warren Professor in a down chair at uh, public law at UC Berkeley Law School. And he's also written White by Law, Racism on Trial. He's written so much that's appeared in the New York Times and Yale Law Journal. And he's visited at Yale and NYU and Harvard. And he's amazing. So we're so um, grateful to have you with us. And just so you know, um, Professor Lopez, the students have read about 150 pages of Merge Left, but that's what they've been assigned. I'm sure people have read more of it. Um, uh, but I think everybody's super curious both to hear about just kind of your thinking on the book and also if it has evolved at all given the events of this summer. Um, so, and then of course the election in six days. <laughs> um, so awesome, thank you for being here. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Saru, and thank you, Michael. I appreciate the invitation to be here and talk to you all. Um, the question of whether my thinking has evolved, it's a really great question, and I think it, um, I, I want to reserve it, and, and maybe we'll get back to it later. I, th I think um, a, a more particular framing of that is, um, ought we to be talking about white supremacy? Is that a good way to engage in the politics of the moment? And I think it's... Um, uh, yeah, I think it's a super important question, but I want to I want to reserve that question. Um, what I'd like to do is give you a little bit of like a, like the biographical history. Where did these ideas come from? And I want to start by focusing on um, uh, Amy Coney Barrett, or or rather, I want to start by focusing on law and the Supreme Court in a way that gives context to uh, Amy Coney Barrett's um, appointment to the Supreme Court. Um, and then I really, and then I wanna talk about the connection between race, class and racial justice. Um, and then I want to um, uh, dodge and evade Saru's questions, um, kind of just play out the clock and you know, see how well that goes. <laughs> okay, so, um, and then I think we're going to Q&A with the whole class, so super interested. I, I love it when Saru said, you know, you're assigned 150 pages, but no doubt you read more. I know I, as a student, you know, if, if, if they assign the whole book, I, I read it twice. That, that's who I was as a student. Or 
I skimmed it. It was one of those two. I can't quite recall which one it was. Okay. So let me tell you a little bit about myself. So, um, you know, scholar of, of race and law um, uh, and really interested in the question of the legal construction of race, which is white by law. Um, but from there, I really became interested in the question of, of racism, not, not right, like not just the social construction of race, but racism, how, uh, how it works, how it's protected. Um, and in that context, I really began to focus on the contemporary Supreme Court. And by contemporary, I mean post-civil rights. The Supreme Court after, um, let's say about 1970, that's when the court really begins to shift um, because Richard Nixon manages to make four appointments to the Supreme Court uh, during his two administrators, administration and a half <laughs> before he had to flee rather than face impeachment. Um, what was remarkable about the court was that it, it completely flipped equal protection. So during the civil rights period that are sort of marked by Brown versus Board of Education, the court generally understood um, uh, that white racism was pervasive, um, that the court needed to, uh, against white racism against people of color was pervasive, that the court needed to intervene um, increasingly uh, in the 60s, it began to, it, it came to understand that, that, that racism was not just a matter of personal bigotry, but was institutionalized, that the institutions needed to shift. Um, in one of the, one of the hallmark decisions from 1968, um, the court said uh, segregation must be eliminated root and branch. And that root and branch was the way the court was saying, hey, this isn't just good intentions. We don't care about intentions anymore change the structure, change the system. And yet uh, in the 50 years since, or really in about, it took about 20 years, by about the mid eighties, this transformation was complete. The court adopted a doctrine of uh, um, what, you know, um, um, uh, intentional discrimination that, that essentially refused to find any racism against people of color or, or against women. So 1979 is actually the last year the Supreme Court finds, upholds a finding of discrimination against women or people of color under this new intent doctrine standard. There's one outlier in the mid eighties, but, but that's just a little blip and they go back to the old standard, the pre-intent standard. So, so the court adopts this weird like, Hey, you have to show an intent. Um, it's it's a little bit messed up. I, I'm this is early in the talk, so I haven't started swearing yet. So I'm still going with words like messed up. Um, it's a little messed up because the court says, "Hey, you have to show intent." So then lawyers start coming into court and saying, "Well, you know, the state official uh, said the N word and said that you know." And then the court responds by saying, "Are you guys out of your minds?" It's inappropriate to drag elected officials into court and examine their state of mind. And the lawyers are like you just said show intent. And the court's like, yeah, but you can't probe people's mind. Lawyers <laughs> are like, so how are we supposed to show intent? The court's like, I don't know, figure it out. Um, oh, and then the court goes on to say, but you can't use history because that won't show intent in a particular case. And you can't use social science because that's at most a generality. So no statistics either. So no history, no statistics, don't probe a state of mind, do show intent, 
I mean, obviously you, you can't, right? So since 1979, using the intense, sta intense standard, the court has never found discrimination against people of color or against women. But combined with intent, the court developed the doctrine of colorblindness. And the doctrine of colorblindness says, hey, you know what, what, it, what does constitute racism? When somebody says the word race, right? Now, how does that work in terms of discrimination? Well, People who discriminate these days aren't idiots. They tend not to say, my intention is to discriminate on the basis of race. Instead, they use proxies, right? And so they never say the word race and the court sees no racism. On the other hand, if you'd like to promote integration, it's really helpful to say the word race or white or black. Whereupon the court says, yo, you just said white, or you just said black, or you just said race conscious, you racists. And it strikes down all of those cases. Almost all the affirmative action cases, except for a narrow exception in the context of, of, of higher education. And even that, I don't know how long that's gonna last. And in these, this doctrine of colorblindness is so, we're gonna stay with messed up, is so messed up that the court is now starting to apply colorblindness anti-discrimination law. So let's say you are the city of New Haven, Connecticut, and you want to make sure that hiring in the fire department does not discriminate on the basis of race. In order to figure that out, you might actually have to look to see if a recent hiring practice only promoted white people. That is, you might have to notice the race of the people being promoted or not being promoted in order to figure out whether there's a discrimination, whether a discrimination is ongoing. Whereupon the court said, oh my God, you just noticed race, you racists. And it struck down New Haven's attempt to enforce anti-discrimination law because anti-discrimination law itself, the court said, was racist, right? And so here we have this doctrine, these two doctrines, one that says, you have to, one that says any mention of race is racist, even if it's designed to fight racism or to promote integration. And the other that says, but if there's no mention of race, it can't possibly be racist, right? And the, and, and the combination of this is racism is rampant against whites as far as the Supreme Court is concerned, but non-existent against people of color. And so I spent a wasted uh, decade of my life reading all of those cases. I'll never get that decade back. Um, and then, and really like, I'm like, okay, I'm a scholar. I'm gonna take seriously the rationales that the court offers. Um, and it's impossible. It's impossible. And it, you know, and, and the, the sort of the, the, um, the absurdity of the intent doctrine is an example of what the court's doing, right? It, it's saying you have to show intent in a specific case, therefore no history, therefore no social science, no statistics. But the minute you try and show intent in a particular case, the court says, oh no, you can't do that. You can't probe mindsets, right? Like the, like the rationales is, is just, it's, it's untenable, all right? Or um, um, the explanations for colorblindness, right? You have, you have Clarence Thomas and Antonin Scalia saying, we can't literally, literally saying we can't tell the difference between Jim Crow racial subordination and affirmative action. Both are race conscious. And you're like, no, I, you know, I'm like, I'm sorry, but a two-year-old can figure out the difference between being nice and, and, and it, it being mean and excluding somebody, right? Like, like welcome, like keep out. Like a two-year-old can make that distinction. 
but but the Supreme Court can't, right? So um, where did that lead me? That lead me to think what's driving this doctrine, these, these combined doctrines, this new equal protection that only sees discrimination against whites, but not at all against people of color, is not the reasoning that the justices are putting forward. What, what's driving this doctrine is the politics of the Supreme Court justices themselves. And, and initially I was thinking about this as little opposed to electoral politics, right? Like, they, like their ideological predisposition, the way in which they see the world. But that wasn't quite right because it turned out it was really the politics of the presidents who were appointing them. And again, um, one way to understand politics is in that, you know, lowercase, right, right, not partisan, but lowercase worldview kind of thing. That's not quite right. Because the more I looked at what was happening with the uh, party, uh, the, the, the presidents that are appointing these reactionary justices, and, and I, and I want to, we can talk about this later. I want to call them reactionary rather than conservative, because conservative, little c conservative, is um, uh, a set of beliefs about protecting social norms and institutions, proceeding slowly, recognizing that society must evolve, but doing so in a way that recognizes traditions and values. Little c conservatism would uphold a shift towards racial equality that we as a country had labored towards, have been laboring towards through the Civil War, through dramatic amendments to the Constitution, through 30 years of social change. Little c conservatism might say we need to go slowly, but it would protect these major social institutions and also the notion that society evolves. Um, Reactionary, in contrast, says we're going to uphold earlier unjust hierarchies. And that's really who these justices are. These are reactionary justices. Okay, but what was happening that they were being appointed? They were being appointed by presidents who it turned out were telling a story to the American public. And the story that they were telling was one of racial fear and resentment. It was the dog whistle story. It was a story that said, people of color are undeserving, people of color are dangerous, whites are the new minority, um, whites are, are disrespected, whites are imperiled, whites are at risk of being displaced. A story told in code, um, a story told in a way that allowed these politicians plausible deniability, that allowed these politicians to simultaneously stoke racial fear and resentment, but also to insist that they were actually committed to racial egalitarianism. And that's why the language of colorblindness became so important because at the very moment that they're declaring that integration efforts are unconstitutional, they're simultaneously saying, and the reason they're unconstitutional is because they're racist and we are against racism. And the real racists in this country, the right is saying, are these racial justice activists who keep saying we should integrate our society by being race conscious, right? So these justices were being appointed as part of dog whistle politics. They were being appointed so that these, these dog whistle politicians could convey to their base the basic story of um, a threatening culture war politics that helped divide the country. Um, 
One more thing I want to add about that, and this is a very important point. That aspect of these justices being hostile to civil rights was actually only one part of what was attractive about these justices. The other part of what was attractive about these new justices is that they were pro-plutocracy. They were pro-plutocracy. And now you might say that, you might say something like they were pro-business. And I think more often that's the language that people use, but there's lots of ways to be pro-business. And in fact, if you think about the new deal in which government regulated the economy, um, uh, and, and provided routes of upward mobility and encouraged unions. That was also a great era for American businesses. So there's lots of ways to be pro-business. I think the right has hijacked the term pro-business when really what's going on is these justices are pro-plutocracy. And what does pro-plutocracy mean? It means a combination of things. One, um, uh, a, a predisposition to protect um, uh, corporations and the wealthy from the consequences of their own actions. So cutting back on tort law um, to a hostility towards unions. Um, th three, hostility towards government regulation of corporations and the very wealthy. Uh, four, an outsized role for corporations and the wealthy in American politics, right? There's a, there's a whole complex of, of issues of policies that together combine to ensure that government primarily works for the rich. That's what I mean by pro-plutocracy. That's Amy Coney Barrett. She is, she is a, she's appointed um, uh, in, in the context of culture war politics, in the context of uh, a promise to white evangelical Christians to put on the court a justice who will overturn reproductive rights, who will overturn um, um, contraception, right? Who, who, who will uphold the values of patriarchy, frankly, who's very likely to uphold homophobia and the ability of people to discriminate on the basis of homophobia. That's how she's being sold. That's how she's being promoted by Americans for prosperity. But Americans for Prosperity is the Koch brothers or the Koch brother, now that one of them's dead. They care a little bit about these cultural politics as cultural politics. They care much more about justices who are pro-plutocracy, who are gonna issue a series of decisions or continue a line of decisions that ensure an outsized role for money in politics, um, that cut back on attempts to regulate the economy, that cut back on the ability to unionize, um, uh, um, uh, that insulate um, corporations from the consequences of their own actions. That's really what's happening, right? And so an another way to say that is um, this whole thesis of, of racism as a class weapon is for me, Right. One of the one of the two big there's there's actually two sort of big roots of this. And I'll talk about the other in just a second. But the first sort of big root of this for me is trying to understand what happened in law to the way the Supreme Court understood equality because it flipped it on its head and it made equality doctrine about protecting white dominance. And I and I was like, how? Why? How, how did that happen? And 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 the answer is not the reasons the Supreme Court justices themselves offer. 
The reason is the politics of the presidents who put them on the court. And that politics is class politics that used racism as a wedge issue. What is fundamentally about plutocracy. Um, so I, so yeah, so okay, so that's the first part of what I wanted to say, right? That this is like, this is one place that this is coming out of is trying to understand what happened in equal protection. Here's the other big route for, you know, like, like how I get to this paradigm change. And I, and I, wanna, I wanna call it a paradigm change, not to suggest that this is in any way original. In fact, this idea of racism as a class weapon is really a very old idea. I mean, I would say this is Bacon's Rebellion. This is the fusion movement right after the Civil War. This is um, Martin Luther King saying we must simultaneously fight uh, imperialism, capitalism, and militarism, right? Like, like the idea that all of these are linked very old idea. I'm not, and I'm not calling it a paradigm change to say, to, to claim, oh, you know, I've, you know, I've struck on something new. I am calling it a paradigm though, to signal to people that most of us are thinking in the context of a different paradigm and that it's challenging to shift from one, one basic framework to another. The basic framework most of us have been using, and certainly that I was using when I started these projects was that racism is fundamentally a white over non-white hierarchy. That's fundamentally, I thought, okay, that's, that's what racism is at root, white over non-white hierarchy. And then the paradigm change is fundamentally racism is a weapon of the powerful few against all the rest of us. And, I, and, and now let me keep going from there because I think one way to understand that comment, racism is a, is a weapon against all the rest of us is an evasion of racism, um, uh, a foregrounding of class issues that hides from how, much, how racism actually harms communities of color. And so this is where I wanna focus on the other route for, for this thinking, and that is mass incarceration. So that at the same time that I was trying to figure, it's trying to be like, hey, what, you know, what happened to equality? I was also trying to understand where mass incarceration came from and what we could do about it. And in particular, I was working on this pro on the mass incarceration project in 2008 when Barack Obama was elected. And then I was stunned to see that Obama did almost nothing to end mass incarceration. He protected it. He, he continued to allow the machinery of racialized mass incarceration to move forward. And indeed, he built a whole nother machinery of government violence against communities of color in the form of mass deportation. Obama, even more than George Bush, deported people at, at historic levels, right? And on a sustained basis, year after year after year. And he disproportionately targeted Latinos. He was deporting more Latinos than we constituted as a proportion of those who were undocumented at the time. So here's this clearly progressive, racially woke politician who's continuing racialized mass incarceration that overwhelmingly targets black communities, black and brown communities, but black communities especially, and who's, who's proactively building the machinery of state violence against Latinos. And why was that? And I realized 
it was the same thing that was producing this per, these perverse results on the Supreme Court. That is, it wasn't white racism that was driving Barack Obama to support state violence against communities of color. It was politics, but not politics as distinct from racism, politics as the normalization of racism, the institutionalization of racism. Obama knew that Republicans were, were they were going to, were, were already through the Tea Party beating him up for being a black president who cared more about communities of color than he did about whites. And he knew that the proxy language they would use would be law and order, crime, thugs, and also illegal aliens. And in order to deflect that criticism, that attack that he knew was coming, he decided that he would be tough on criminals and tough on undocumented immigrants to insulate himself. The net result was he didn't insulate himself at all because the attacks aren't based in reality anyway, but he did continue these policies that destroyed families and destroyed communities in both the African-American and Latino communities through mass incarceration and through mass deportation. But once again, here's that, that core insight is like, oh, wow, this dynamic of racism as a class weapon that dominates our electoral system is also the principal explanation for systematic government violence against communities of color. And I'm gonna say that again, because it's so, it's so important. And, it, and, it's, and it's, frankly, it's a little bit controversial. So let me, let me make this in a, as sharp a way as possible. Who killed George Floyd? What killed George Floyd? And I think a lot of our conversation says, you know, Derek Chauvin, racist police officer, culture of racism in the police. Yeah, I got that. I don't think that's a primary response. That's not primarily responsible. So then another answer says, well, violent policing has its roots in slavery and in Jim Crow and mass incarceration is a continuation of that. And I'm good with that answer too. But that answer kind of points to this weird like inertia, like slavery and Jim Crow are just continuing to infect our society. Yeah, I, I, I guess that's right. But something dramatic changes in 1970. And it wasn't just inertia. We went from a couple hundred thousand people in jails and prisons in 1970 to 2.3 million when Barack Obama was president. Like, that's not inertia. That's, that's the rapid ramping up of this level of violence. The, the most important cause for government violence against communities of color was, was not white racism in general. It was not the vestiges of past racism in general. It was dog whistle politics in particular. It was politicians on the campaign trail saying, we've got to crack down on criminals. We've got to crack down on super predators. We've got to, crack, we've got to re, you know, enforce law and order. And then governing by militarizing the police by heavily funding police departments, by encouraging three strikes laws, by funding the building of prisons. And to connect this back to racism within police forces, our politicians have, have asked, have pushed 
police forces to turn themselves into engines of racial oppression in a way that encourages a culture of dehumanization, brutality, and white supremacy within our police forces and a culture of militarism. Right? That's what we've done. And our politicians did that. And I don't mean to say, hey, you know, none of these police officers bear responsibility. There's a lot of racist police officers. There's a lot of police officers trying to reform it, whatever. But the basic structure of what we've done as a society is we've asked our police forces and our immigration system to become agents of racial oppression and dehumanization and brutality. That's what we asked of them. And then when they do, we shouldn't be surprised at all that we end up with racist police officers, individual racist police officers. They're part of an institution that encourages that, that welcomes that, that pushes people in that direction. The thing you can't do in most of these institutions is be strongly in favor of racial egalitarianism, of seeing all of us as fully human, right? That's what these institutions culturally protect themselves against. And when you, and you, you see that nowhere more clearly than when police unions and the border guard unions come out and endorse Donald Trump. They have that, right? They, they under, they have, we have created a culture of racist oppression that then depends upon, and it becomes, enters into this feedback loop with these politicians who are themselves promoting racism, fear, and oppression. All right. And now one last comment, and then I'll, and then I'll, and then I'll stop. This insight that dog whistle politics is the proximate cause for government violence against communities of color then leads to another insight. And that is the most promising route toward racial justice for communities of color is defeating dog whistle politics. The most promising route toward racial justice, toward reforming the criminal justice system, towards frankly abolishing ICE, the most promising route is defeating dog whistle pol politicians. And I wanna just amplify that just a little bit. I've defined violence, pretty narrowly so far. I've really talked about like literal, the literal violence, the, the, of the, you know, the militarized policing, including in immigration context. But violence in my mind also includes systematic disinvestment from communities of color, systematic stripping of wealth from our infrastructure. It includes Flint. It includes Detroit. It includes what's happening in uh, communities it, on, on Native American reservations, right? Like we have taken government out of communities of color, except in the form of oppressive racist policing, right? And that's violence too, right? And, and the most promising way to correct that is to defeat dog whistle politicians. And the only way to defeat dog whistle politicians is with a broad multiracial coalition, right? So this, this move to, to this paradigm change of understanding race as a class weapon that requires a broad multiracial coalition so that we can stand up to the very rich and take government back for all of us is simultaneously the best way to fight plutocracy and the best way to fight for racial justice. And those are the two sort of core themes that I want to uh, emphasize. And then, okay, I'll, I'll stop. So much to pick apart there. <laughs> um, 
But okay, I do want to start with the question I laid out at the beginning, because there's a chapter in your book about the fact that um, talking about structural racism, racial justice didn't work in the past with both white and people of color voters. Um, and then you and I have had conversations after your book came out about like, you know, we, we're not yet at a place where we can talk about historical racism with white people. But it did seem like this summer, there was obviously kind of a huge reckoning in this country with race, with historical racism, with structural racism, with white supremacy. Do you think, I guess I would say, do you think there might be a shift in the, if you were to do those focus groups again, do you think there would be a shift in the way people would react to those words? And then, and then therefore, has there been any change in the way you've thought about is it more appropriate to be talking about those things now than it was before? Yeah. So as it turns out, I did do those focus groups again. So so I was in the field with focus groups in May and uh, sorry, yeah, May and June of this year, with a survey in the field in July of this year, um, and it was in the context of a study of um, uh, how to mobilize Latinos in particular. So we did fifteen focus groups with Latinos across the country. Um, and then, and then we did um, a survey of 1,145 Latinos across the country. But in addition, because of this uh, sense that when you try and mobilize one group, you have to be very careful not to play into, not to not to create a sense of zero sum conflict, right? Like of zero sum competition. I also wanted to make sure that the messages that worked well with Latinos would also work well with whites and African Americans. So I did surveys of 400 African-Americans and 400 whites. That survey size is um, um, as large as, the, the sample size is actually slightly larger than the samples we used in the first race class narrative project. Right? So, so I've seen how this works. If you think about um, May and June, that was the height of the popularity of the movement for black lives and of the protest for the, uh, against the murder of George Floyd. That was when those that, that was when that message those messages that rhetoric of of uh, systemic racism and of white racism um, uh, had the greatest purchase. Since then, in public polling, we've we've seen support for movement for Black Lives fall by twenty points or more, right? Um, uh, and and I don't. Okay, so so I want to say I want to answer on two levels. On one level, I want to say the movement, the, the move to talk about systemic racism and the move to talk about white supremacy and a history of white supremacy is incredibly important. Um, and I particularly want to um, uh, extol the work being done by Brian Stevenson, which is really, you know, in my mind, a sort of a medium term culture change project, you know, the sort of tear down the statutes of, you know, racist, um, 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 uh, traitorous uh, leaders of the Confederacy, tear down those statutes, replace them with placards, um, replace them, um, uh, you know, placards um, that direct our attention to the horrors of lynching, to the horrors of slave markets, um, statutes to um, bold leaders for freedom, um, 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 you, you know, really 
engage in a in a sort of a a, a a a battle for our cultural memory. I think that's just incredibly important. Um, I think that the, the that talking about white supremacy, talking about systems of oppression, is really part of that that medium term effort, right? And I, I completely endorse it. At the same time, I think that thinking about race as a class weapon is a very important addition to that sort of a framework. Um, and it's a, it is a critical addition because it gives people a different context in which to understand white over non-white hierarchy. So if you stay within the framework of white over non-white hierarchy, you actually further deepen the sense that we are as a society locked into a conflict between whites and people of color and that we must all choose sides. And now uh, that's very often what we on the left say. And, and, and then we say the moral side is the side that stands with people of color, right? And the immoral side is the side that stands with white dominance, with white supremacy. Be moral, do the right thing, stand against racism, join with people of color. And, and, and here's, here's the hard truth. And this is the truth. If you say to Americans, you got to choose. You got to choose. What racial side do you want? White folks or people of color? You might get 10% of whites. And kudos to them. You might get a third of Latinos. You're not going to get more than that, right? And, and, and among African-Americans, you might get 60%, maybe. But if you think about the Chicano power movement, if you think about even the movement for black lives, that's consciousness raising. If you think about, I dare say, your course, if you think about every course I ever taught as a critical race theorist, that's consciousness raising. Why is consciousness raising so hard? because we're spending a lot of time trying to convince people of a reality that's pretty fucking brutal, right? We're trying to say to people, hey, bad news. You're coming of age in a society that is structured in terms of a deep hierarchy of white over non-white. And you need to stand with the subordinated and the oppressed. And you need to recognize that your life and the life of your children will always be severely truncated by that racism. But fight back. Join with others who are oppressed. Of course, you should recognize that 400 years of history is against you. So is the president. So is an entire elected party. So are the wealthiest elements of the society. And Congress doesn't look like you. And commerce doesn't look like you. And the military doesn't look like you. And culture doesn't look like you. But join us. Right? That's our message. And it's not that that's not true. It's, in, it's, it's partially true, right? And, and, and I say this saying, this is where I was. This, is, this, this was me during graduate school. This is me during my first 15 years as a professor, right? Like we must speak against the power of white racism, though we will, we will lose, right? And, and if you think about other, uh, I really want to invoke here, Derek Bell, sort of, sort of the father of critical race theory. I mean, he subtitles one of his books, The Permanence of Racism. And the reason racism seems permanent to him is because he's solidly within this paradigm that says racism is a hierarchy of whites over people of color. And in that context, 
whites are never going to give up their power. And he might have added, which is something that I've come to recognize, you're going to lose a lot of people of color too, because frankly, they do not, a lot of people of color do not want to be part of the oppressed, right? And this is, this is the, the survey we just ran with Latinos, one quarter identified as people of color, 60% rejected that designation. Split between a, a, a half of that 60% said, no, we're white. Half of that 60% said, actually, race isn't that big a constraint. We just need to put our heads down and work hard. And, and I'm guessing that a lot of you all in the audience, if you think about your families, a lot of you are like, oh, I know those, those people, the people who are like, I'm not going to associate with uh, people of color. I'm going to put my head down. I'm going to work hard. We're going to make it, right? That's like a lot. Certainly my mom. This is so, okay. On one level, that's bad news. But on another level, thinking about it as bad news misses the alternative. And the, and the alternative is, is to add in the insight that the main driver of racial hierarchy is not bad people. The main driver of racial hierarchy is the interests of the wealthy few the powerful few who are constantly encouraging racial division in a way that makes it essential that all of us fight that racial division and join together and build bridges, right? And so this is the, on one level, this is the race class message. And it turns out this is a very powerful, a very effective political message right now as a message, but it's much more than a message. It's, a, it's an analysis. It's like, no, this is, this is true. Like if you, if you think about slavery. Slavery doesn't arise out of hate. It arises from the profit motive. And the racism that justifies slavery, that's not first and foremost about hate. Hate is created by the plantation class, right? And, and, and likewise, um, at every turn, um, when we think about manifest destiny, manifest destiny doesn't arise because whites naturally hate Mexicans. Whites are taught to hate Mexicans to justify the taking of the northern half of Mexico and its redistribution among the plantation class. And then also among whites as part of the quid pro quo for believing in white dominance and white and manifest destiny. Same with Native Americans, right? Like at every turn, racism is fundamentally being driven by powerful elites who profit from a system of racial hierarchy. And and Coming to understand that allows us to see a, a couple of things. One, it allows us to see that all of us have, you know, that, that the most important thing for any of us to do for ourselves is to fight racism. That fighting racism is not something you do simply to help the subordinated or oppressed. It's not a choice you can make and you can say like, I can fight racism or I can ignore it and disaffiliate from those people and go and lead my happy life. You, you either fight racism or you live in a plutocracy that is busy pushing society over the cliff towards climate collapse. Those are your choices, right? I mean, that's, and that's if you think you can avoid racial hierarchy. If you think you can benefit from racial hierarchy. If you think lighter or being whiter insulates you from racism. Racism is going to destroy your life and it's going to destroy your life because it's supporting a plutocracy and it's driving climate collapse. 
right? So all of us, right? And then in addition, a lot of us are like actually afflicted by racism much more directly, right? So um, that's one thing it does. Here's the other thing it does. It pushes us to see more clearly what it is we're doing in progressive movement building. Like, is the goal really to convince people they're people of color? Or is the goal really to convince everybody to recognize our shared humanity and fight against racism, build bridges with others and take care of each other? Isn't that the real goal? Because we can do that. And I think what's happened with the Chicano power movement, um, with a lot of the, 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 you know, the sort of the third world movement, the assumption has been to get people to recognize our shared humanity, to get people to take care of each other. You have to convince people that they're people of color first, and then you have to make a moral demand on whites to oppose racism. But we actually don't have to do that. We can go directly to what it is we're trying to do. And I think the most important thing we're trying to do is get people to recognize our shared humanity, fight racism, join together, take care of each other. That's, that's, what, that's what I really want to do. Like, and, and somebody might say to me, you know, um, um, if that's the main goal, then, you know, what about, you know, will Latinos exist in 30 years or 50 years if we could actually get there? I'm like, I don't know. I don't really care. I, you know what I mean? I don't need Latinos or Blacks or Asian Americans to exist as a coherent racial group for its own sake. What I need is a society in which we recognize each other's humanity, we celebrate difference, we reject racism against anybody, and we take care of each other. And what race would look like in that society? It's a mystery because we're pretty effing far from that society now, right? And in that context of a racially oppressive society, it certainly makes sense to build identity and power around being black, being Latino, being Asian, whatever. I don't know what it would look like 50 years from now if we could, or in this, in this society that I, I hope we can build, right? But I think, I do think that's the real goal. A society that celebrates difference, recognizes shared humanity, rejects racism and takes care of everybody, affords everybody dignity and the best possible chance to thrive. Okay, I'm going to push just a little bit more here. Because <laughs> um, there's, there's a lot you said. So I think we're all clear uh, at, that the race class narrative and thinking about racism as essentially a tool of the elites to accomplish their, to maintain their power and privilege um, is not just an effective messaging tool or political tool, but is true, right? That's clear. I did hear you say at the beginning, it is also, correct me if I'm wrong, it is also an important ongoing project of this country to recognize its history and the history of structural racism and white supremacy, because ultimately we can't overcome it if we don't recognize it. Would, would you agree with that? And so I guess I would still ask, do you think, even though you didn't see much movement among the focus groups, do you think we move further along that 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 trajectory of that secondary goal of recognizing our history and kind of what how do the two interplay then so if we if we do move forward with really doing a much better job of recognizing racism as a tool of the elites while we simultaneously continue to have the nation reckon with its history 
you know, at what point do these two things intersect and actually yeah. change? Yeah, they're, com they're completely bound together. The, the, way I would, the way I would come back is I would say, why is it important for the country to grapple with its history? Why is it important for the country to engage in repair, right? Not, you know, atonement and repair. One answer is because this, this country is founded on a great moral evil and it must recognize the immorality, the evil of its past barbarism, the contemporary manifestations of that um, and must engage in a process of atonement and also repair. Completely agree. And frankly, that's a lot of the reparations debate. Now, it should also be clear that that sort of a framing, I, th I, th I think that carries about 70% of African-Americans and about 30% of whites framed as an abstraction. I, I guarantee you would carry even fewer whites if it were actually turned into concrete policies. So let me try, but, but, but nevertheless, I mean, it's not that I disagree with that. I think it's completely right, but I also think Again, it emphasizes an understanding of racism that says racism is a white problem, but also something that benefits whites. And we call upon whites to be moral in remedying this thing that they did and that they benefit from. Compare an approach that, that says, Every one of us is under danger from racism because it's an intentional strategy division. And the only way forward is a, is a, a multiracial democracy, a true multiracial democracy. And what a true multiracial democracy requires is actual equality and integration. And in turn, actual equality and integration demands that we grapple with the ugly sins of our past, the harms we've done, the barbarity we've, we've perpetrated, and that we engage in atonement and repair because only when we repair the harms we've done can we create a multiracial democracy that is essential if any one of us is to survive the next 30 or 50 years, right? And so what that has done is it has is, it is shifted, it has added to the argument for reparations, the idea that it's not just a question of morality, it is the single most important thing any of us can do to save our own families, whatever racial group we're a part of. We, we can't build a multiracial movement on the cheap, right? And, and this, is where I, this is where I think there's an incredibly important role for racial justice folks, right? Because I think that, that what happens initially with race class is a lot of white people are like, oh, I'm all over this. Right, because it because it allows white folks to say, "Oh, I'm not the problem." Great. Well, I'm just going to call for multiracial solidarity. And there's a version of it that's really on the cheap. Right now, we can all just get along. And this is where I think it becomes really important for racial justice folks to say, "Hell yeah, we're going to build a multiracial democracy, but it's going to be a true multiracial democracy in which each of us, we in which communities have equal power, equal dignity, equal regard, and that is going to require." hard work to deal with white privilege, hard work to deal with system, systemic racism, hard work to engage in processes of repair. And we're gonna do it because this is the only way any of us survive, right? And so this is the, um, so if I, you know, if I come back to this summer, this summer is, is a, both a big advance 
in terms of people's awareness of systemic racism, of police violence, um, uh, murderous police violence against uh, the African-American community. And it's also fragile. And the reason it's fragile is because a lot of support for the black community and a lot of support for a new rhetoric condemning white racism is tied towards resistance to Donald Trump. Like, like a lot of people are saying Donald Trump's a racist and they don't actually have a fairly sophisticated understanding of racism. It's just another way of saying that guy's a major asshole, right? And so we get rid of Donald Trump and you're gonna see, de- you're gonna see this big decline in, in, the, in the sort of um, commitment to a, an analysis of systemic racism commitment to an analysis that says um, the police are engaged in systematic violence against communities of color, ICE must be abolished. A lot of that right now is is a way for people to say, Donald Trump has got to go, right? And now, how do we we leverage that? How do we we build on it? How do we keep it going? We have to say, not only this is the moral thing to do, but we also have to say, Everything you want in your life for yourself and for your family depends on you fighting racism and building a multiracial movement. And it's not going to be easy. It's going to require really dealing with racism to build a true multiracial egalitarian class conscious movement. It's going to be hard work, but everything in your world depends on doing that work. And that's the relationship between the two. Yeah, and of course, um, everything is more complicated also because if you think about racism as a tool of the elites, and then you think about what happened this summer and any advance we made to have people deal with historical racism, I think it's complicated by the fact that so many elites, corporations, capitalism, co-opted, or maybe if not co-opted, used that terminology, used that language to promote themselves, you know? And so the the intersection between those two, I think got more complicated, but okay. I have one last big question and I know Professor Cohen has questions, other people have questions, but it goes to um, what you just talked about and the fact that Donald Trump has been in some ways a uniter for many people on the, on the question of race. And um, now looking forward to frankly, maybe the next several months of fighting over (laughs) our democracy. And then beyond that, a potential Biden-Harris administration and this language that Biden's using around, we need to unite, we need to come together, we need to, you know, unify. Um, I spent some time on Monday talking with the class about how over the last four years, you and I and many others were part of so many different gatherings, meetings, coalitions, where there was this grappling between, you know, post 2016, do we try to unite white working class and people of color and really try to build this race class solidarity that you're talking about? Or do we just do a better job of mobilizing the base, you know, and it's a both and, but while we were grappling with the both and, it did feel to me that the country just got more and more and more ossified in its division. And we didn't really succeed, at least over the last four years in accomplishing the goals. And so where does that leave us over the next couple months of potential civil war? And then is it really possible under Biden-Harris administration to unify in the way that he's talking about or in the way that we were talking about, which is different? 
yeah. So let me just let me just talk about that for about five seconds, and then I'll. <laughs> such a sorry. sorry these are such that. a Thank yeah. No, no. These are these are amazing questions. So I think that 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 let me start by the way in which Biden is talking about unity, and and to, and and here's what I want to say. Biden is not doing race class. Biden is doing pablum. Biden is, you know, is doing milk toast, right? So one of the things that we tested in race class and our focus groups is, is a message that says, hey, we should all come together. And people are like, yeah, right. You know, and, and we should all be nice to each other and we should all get along and we should all, you know, have a bunny in the morning to pet and, you know, and wouldn't that be great? And, you know, Sundays for everybody, but hey, let's be real. We're not all coming together. There are real differences. Some of my neighbors are my enemies. And yeah, in some other world, we'll all unite, but that's not reality, right? So if all you do is say, we should come together, that comes across to people as just smiley talk, right? Like, hey, yeah, great ideal. I'm, I'm glad you're an upbeat, positive person. I'm sorry you're naive, but I, you know, I, I, I like you, right? This, you know, that, 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 that SNL skit about Biden that said, uh, you know, um, um, uh, I'm, a, I'm the midsize sedan with the higher, highest rating in consumer safety and satisfaction, right? It's like, I'm just nondescript and, you know, and like, we should all get along, right? And isn't that better than somebody who's a jerk, right? So, but that's all it is. What distinguishes race class is two other things that get centered. One, that we really talk directly about race, that we have to name race before and in the context of we all get we all come together because that's the biggest division because most people have deeply internalized a, a sense that those who are dark or different threaten their lives. So we need to name race. The other thing you, we, we must name is that division is an intentional strategy of the powerful few. And the reason it's so important to name division as an intentional strategy is because that transforms the call from unity. It transforms it from this sort of empty ideal into a pragmatic way forward. Like when you say divide and conquer, people know what the solution to do. One, they know divide and conquer because they've seen it in their workplace, they've, they've seen it in their families, they've seen it in their churches. And two, they know the solution. When people are trying to divide you, you gotta work with others to build, to build alliances against the person trying to divide you. That's the only way, people know that immediately, right? So a race class, and, it, and it's interesting because Biden actually has sometimes the divide message. This guy's trying to divide us. Come on, man, you're trying to divide us. He's always pushing division. This guy's a racist. Come on, man. He needs to he needs to push a little further. He needs to say he's trying to divide us because when he can divide and distract us, he can rig the system for the rich. And then he needs to say, and all this talk about unity yeah, it's our national ideal, but it's also the pragmatic way forward. We can't move forward unless we come together, right? And so that's the that's what a, a race class message, a coherent race class message that, that uh, again, what you know resonates with people is 
we share values across racial groups, right? Get race in there front and center. Some people are trying to divide us because they profit when we're fearing and fighting each other. We must come together to make sure that our families are taken care of. That, right? And, and just, just we must come together doesn't work. Okay, so, so that's the sort of, you know, um, nevertheless, um, uh, uh, Biden Harris will be elected next week. I'm of that, I'm completely certain. Whether they will be selected by the Electoral College, um, um, by the Supreme Court, um, through the um, strategizing of vote suppression and Russian interference, that I can't answer. I know that a majority of Americans next week will vote to elect Joe Biden and Kamala Harris. Whether our democratic institutions are strong enough to ensure that there's actual, they actually transition into the White House, that I don't know. I'm not sure what to say about this, this incredibly critical transitional period, but if we have, if we have a Biden-Harris administration after you know, January 20th, it's just going to be, and I know, Saro, you're, you know, this is actually the work you're doing, right? Like, it's going to be so important to push and push and push, um, partly on the race front, because Democrats have so deeply internalized the idea that um, they're going to lose if they're associated with racial justice, that they, right, and this is why Barack Obama did so little for racial justice, right? And so there's going to be that tendency in the Biden-Harris administration. Even now you can see it, you know, Kamala Harris is barely talking about racial justice, right? So there is, so So to get them to do anything for racial justice, we really are going to have to push them to recognize that, that there's a very popular way to approach racial justice, and that is to describe it as part of the process of creating a multiracial democracy. And um, I can say more about that, I, you know, or somebody should ask me a little bit more about that. I've got the, the Project Juntos um, uh, data in which I did a couple of racial justice messages, criminal reform and immigration reform, framed in terms of a race class approach and it actually won among whites over the dog whistle fear message. So, so like, as opposed to a call out white racism message, which consistently loses big among whites and also um, among Latinos, right? So, so, so one thing we need to do is push the Biden-Harris administration to say, you can do racial justice and you can do racial justice in a way that actually increases voter enthusiasm for you um, uh, across all racial groups. The other big push is um, uh, economic populism. You know, it's like it's 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 not like it's not like Biden and Harris have deep roots in sort of an economic populist model. They're really going to need to, you know, Biden, the consensus builder, now now he needs to think in the language of class war, of, of intentional division. Right? It's like mm, that's going to be a, that's going to be a big push. But but there again. Um, uh, that's what we're going to have to do. And, and now the only thing I'll say that is, that is a, a little bit, for, to me, a little bit encouraging. I was actually encouraged by some of the positions that Biden took in this last debate. A little bit surprised. I was like, oh, wow, he's kind of shifted. 
Um, and I know that 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 Kamala Harris will also shift, right? And here, let me let me distinguish Biden and Harris from Barack Obama. I hold Barack in you know the highest esteem as sort of a person, but he's also politically committed to neoliberalism. He actually believes in neoliberalism. And that's bad for the rest of us. And I, you know, and I, and I think we were never going to be able to successfully push Obama off of neoliberalism because he actually believes it. Whereas I think Biden probably did, but maybe doesn't so much. And I'm not sure that Harris is so deeply committed to neoliberalism. I think, I think Harris is more committed to building an energized majority um, that is going to hold together in 2024. And I, so I think that it, there's reason to hope that we can, and we certainly must try to push a, a um, uh, if we have it, a Biden-Harris administration, both in the direction of racial justice and in the direction of economic populism. And I think the key for both, on both of those fronts, will be convincing them, convincing the sort of insiders, this is the best way to build um, a multiracial coalition that cannot be beaten in 2024. Okay, sorry, I do have one more <laughs> follow-up, sorry, and then I'll hand it over. Because um, you've said so much, that's so interesting. Um, yeah, I, 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 we can talk about whether they're, they're, they believe in neoliberalism or, or, or whether they were pushed, frankly, away from, they've been pushed away from neoliberalism by progressives over the last couple of years. But more I wanna ask before we even get to Biden-Harris, I believe we're going to see kind of a civil war, you know, over the next several months of white militants out in the streets, armed, um, doing what they do, clashing with protesters. Obviously we've been seeing that, you know, over the last couple of months. Um, and so if, if that escalates at all, even to a medium level or a, a very intense level over the next couple of months, um, how does that change the unity, unifying, or even the race class narrative later? Does it make it harder? Does it change it? And I, I just, while you were talking, I kept thinking about how after the Civil War, there was such a desire to make Southerners feel okay, white Southerners feel okay, like the statues and the, you know, let's embrace rather than uh, penalize anybody for trying to separate the nation, right? Yeah. Um, if there's that kind of desire after white militants are out in the streets shooting people to make everybody feel okay and it's okay, will we make, will we repeat some of the mistakes of not dealing with our history and white supremacy that- I, I don't, I don't think so. I mean, I think that, I mean, it's a really, it's a very interesting comparison the North entered the Civil War in small part because of the efforts of abolitionists, but only in small part. The Republican Party itself was opposed to slavery as an economic matter. It opposed the, um, the idea that, that working in middle class, um, tradespeople and farmers um, should have to compete with uh, a labor system organized uh, in a way that profited very tiny but very wealthy minorities, a plantation class, right? Like, sorry, this is all 
the Republican Party said free labor, free soil, free men. They did not give a damn about African-American emancipation. They actively opposed equality for African-Americans. The Republican Party was steeped in anti-Black racism. A lot of the rhetoric of the Republican Party from the 1850s, just immediately prior to the Civil War, um, reeked of anti-Black racism and said part of the problem with slavery is it is spreading these, and then they used the N-word over and over and over and over again all across the country. We must oppose slavery. Why oppose slavery? Because regular folks could not compete with an economic system in which wealth was concentrated in the hands of the few, and that wealth was primarily, overwhelmingly, in the form of unfree labor. Human beings reduced to property who were worked over the course of their entire lives and then also bred so that generations subsequent to them would also work over their uh, course of their entire lives while being unpaid. The opposition to slavery was economic, not moral. And indeed, it was steeped in anti-Black racism. Now, again, that's, that's not everybody. There's, there's abolitionists and they've got their own complicated history. Um, um, you know, I mean, when we, when we think about the opposition to slavery, Lincoln's position is don't spread it outside the South, but keep it in the South. I'm, I'm cool with it, right? Lincoln was like, leave it in the South. And it's only after the North struggles in the Civil War and depends upon military assistance from the newly emancipated African-Americans that the North says, okay, we've got to end slavery throughout the country, including in the South. So in that context, um, um, you get the abolitionists, you get the, the radical Republicans who are, who are arguing for equality, but there was no deep commitment to equality. And so, you know, by 1877, the Compromise of 1877, that you'd get whites walking away from equality, not a surprise at all. They'd never, they'd never much walk toward it, right? Um, what's the difference now? One of the things that I think was really important about the, about the protests, and some of the protests are still ongoing, uh, the Movement for Black Lives protests, is that they were, they were really multiracial, that, that you really had lots of racial communities coming out and saying, we can't stand by. When, when police wantonly murder, in, you know, murder with such complete indifference, murder African-Americans, which, and, and I think that was the thing that was most shocking about the, the Chauvin video, his indifference. It, it, his face wasn't a face racked with hatred. He wasn't yelling racial epithets. He was slowly murdering somebody while checking in on his crew. Hey, how you guys doing? You guys doing okay? He's checking in on his other officers, on his team, while he slowly murders somebody, right? And so, the, and I think that it was a multiracial revulsion at that sort of dehumanization that that, that you really saw, um, <clears throat> and it you know kind of connects up to our earlier conversation. This this big cultural shift happened partly during the civil rights movement, happened partly with the election and re-election of Barack Obama and really the whole Obama family. And I think that Michelle Obama actually deserves a lot of credit for really changing people's perspective about the dignity of African-Americans. Um, um, and then all, you know, and then sort of on the cultural front and whatnot. Um, but so now, um, vigilante violence. If there is vigilante violence, um, I think in some ways, I think in some ways, 
if there's an attempt to thwart the will of the democratic majority, the only way that will be contested, and given that the Republicans control the levers of government, the only way that will be successfully contested will be partially through institutional leaders, but more through people coming out onto the streets. The people most likely to come out onto the streets are the people who are the most politicized, who are paying attention, who already have some sense that democracy is in peril, that this is not normal, that the fate of their society hangs in the balance. That movement, um, I think a lot of the sort of reason to come out in the street for these po for, for, for politicized people will be a sense of protecting democracy, protecting each other, fighting racism, fighting white racism, right? And like, like I don't think you're gonna need a race class message for those folks. They're not the persuadable middle. They're gonna be the sort of committed paying attention. Um, uh, they might not have protested before, but they're gonna be pretty solidly in what we call the, the progressive base, that 20% who are like, actually, we think people of color are human. And we think government should not work for just the very rich, right? right? So these are the folks that we think democracy should work. You know, and, and I say 20%, but it would be, you know, um, unheard of if we could get 3% of the population into the streets, right? And, and, and but we're gonna have to, that's, that's what we're, that's what we're gonna have to do. If this, again, spinning out the hypothetical, if this people's revolt stops the authoritarian power grab of uh, the GOP and Donald Trump, then we will have to engage in a period of repair. But I think that that period of repair, that's when I think race class messaging will be really important um, so that we can shift the story about what just happened to us, right? And not tell a story of white racism, but instead tell a story of fear mongering and racial demagoguery that created hysteria in the population and we're gonna reject that fear mongering. We're gonna reject that demagoguery. Um, we're gonna reject, re re reject out and out white supremacists. And we're gonna build a multiracial democracy in which everybody has a home, right? I mean, that's, that sort of language is gonna, I, I, it's actually, I think gonna be really important. I don't, I don't, yeah, I don't see a sort of response to, I mean, if you, even if you think about, you think about the national response to Charlottesville, the response after Charlottesville and white supremacist uh, um, uh, uh, violence and murder was not, oh, wow, you know, white people are under strain. You know, we're asking a lot of them. Um, um, we all need to just like tone it down and people need to um, uh, tamp down on their demands for racial justice too much, too fast. That language was, was all, was, um, even in the 1960s, that was the language of many white liberals. Too much, too fast, racial justice folks, tone it down, right? You know, um, sorry that they burned down your house when you tried to integrate that neighborhood. You're just pushing too hard. That wasn't the language after Charlottesville. The language after Charlottesville is these people are out of their minds. They threaten the values of our country. They, we want nothing to do with them. Um, and it's sort of 
building on and, and also contributing to an ethos that says, oh, racism, white supremacy is still pervasive. We need to reject it. Um, we, need to, we need to create um, or, um, um, uh, support racial egalitarianism. <laughs> Great. Okay. Professor Cohen, would you like to jump in? Um, yeah, well, I'll turn it to the students really uh, in just a second. I mean, I think the one thing I, I appreciate that just to complicate that narrative, I think, to just looking forward, I mean, one is that we're not going to just be facing uh, white vigilantes on the streets, but the cops working in alliance with them. The cops are pro-Trump, uh, they're pro-social order, they're pro-racial domination, et cetera. And so, yes, the American people um, did recoil in horror um, at Charlottesville. Um, and they re recoiled in horror at the murders uh, by Carl Rittenhouse in Kenosha. Uh, but the conspiracy between vigilantes and the cops creates a legitimacy crisis for an opposition. Um, and similarly, in that scenario, you have the Democratic Party, which seems incapable of fighting for its own interests because it too is a plutocratic entity. And so it's, it strikes me if that's the scenario, then the, the pressures to actually just say, calm down, accept the results the, in the interest of national unity, accept the six to three Biden versus Trump Supreme Court decision. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I'm really not. I, 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 I hope I'm wrong. I genuinely. Yeah. Well, I, I actually think I, I think the first part of your comments, you're probably right. You know, already we've seen the police acting in these really egregious anti-democratic ways um, uh, in the context of voting and 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 polling places. Um, so I think that I think you're I think you're right to say the the risk of violence after the election, um, if there's a refusal to recognize the will of the majority. Is a is a is a risk that that points not only at vigilanteism, um, uh, but at um, legal violence, and and I say legal not in a normative sense, um, but in a formal sense, like like through the lawfully empowered violent arm of the government, um, and in that sense, we should understand vigilante violence as quasi legal, quasi legal in the sense that. Um, uh, um, the state is doing very little to control it and indeed encourages it, right? So, there, so it's not like the violence that we've seen is completely outside of the state and in fact, actively opposed by the state. Um, uh, government has been very slow to um, control the violence coming from white supremacist vigilantes um, and in remarkable ways, disturbing ways, um, uh, talking about you, Donald Trump, hasn't been encouraging that vigilante violence. And, and we could probably, we should expect to see the police, some police forces do the same. So I think you're right in that sort of, um, here's what we'll be up against. How the Democratic Party will respond, there, there I don't know. Um, I don't think this will be another 2000, Al Gore, you know, Bush v. Gore, rollover, it's all going to be okay. Um, I think too many people now see it's not all going to be okay. It's going to get worse. Um, uh, and this, you know, um, 
this may be our last chance to save our society through democratic means, because we can see that these reactionary forces are moving us towards authoritarianism by distorting our legal system, by, by capturing and skewing our institutions, right? This is the sort of Viktor Orban move from, from democracy to authoritarianism that then makes it impossible to use lawful means to contest who wields power in society. And, all right, and that's, that's democracy. It's, are there lawful means to change who's exercising power in society? This may be our last chance to use lawful means to contest who's wielding power. Because if we don't come into power in this cycle, the systems, the institutions, the laws will be increasingly rigged. I mean, it, it's, a, it's an open question whether we can overcome the way in which the rules um, have already been rigged, right? The vote has already been suppressed. The, 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 the courts have already been hijacked. It's an open question whether we can overcome that. And I think that that's, um, I'm with sorrow, man. I'm not sleeping that great. <laughs> I was up at 4 a.m. I, I, I call it Trump spinning, right? I'm like, 4 a.m., time to Trump spin, right? So I, I don't know. I, you know, I don't know. It's a, it's a really, really scary time. Um, uh, so I, I don't know what the, what the damn, I, 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 I guess, I guess part of me is like, it's not entirely up to them. I mean, I think that that, that's, that's why it's so important that people pour into the streets. If people are pouring into the streets, it will be, if there's nobody in the streets, Mm -hmm. there'll be no pressure on the Dems. But if people are in the streets, it's right. Because while we may not be able to, to, yeah, I mean, there's going to be lots of threats to democracy, but I guarantee you in 2022 and 2024, we can defeat a lot of Dems if mm-hmm. we primary them, if that's what it comes to, right? And so it's like, there's, there's gotta be that message to our, our democratic elected officials. I actually saw a, a, an, an ad from the Sunrise Movement that I just like real politic, I loved it. And it was kind of like Sunrise Movement comes out like, hey, climate collapse, Republicans are not gonna do anything, give up on them. Democrats wouldn't do anything if left to their own devices, let's kick their butts. I was like, yeah, there it is. <laughs> it's like, okay. And I think it's going to be the same thing in terms of contesting power. If Democrats feel like, hey, everything's going to be cool because, you know, um, um, plutocracy will be protected and we're doing fine and we can get reelected and remain in power. Sure, they're not going to contest this. But, you know, but if Democrats feel like, oh, wow, we, you know, there's so much pressure on us from the from from the people we need. We ourselves, as individuals, will lose power. We'll lose office unless we contest the the Republican power grab. Um, that's that's the best chance that the, that the that the Democrats will will contest any any power grab. And and again, I you know I I, I this is so you know this is like steeped in American exceptionalism and the idea that like, it can't happen here. So I, I keep feeling like I have to like, well, it's possible they won't try and use brute power to steal the election and thwart the will of democracy. I want to, you know, I want let me, yeah, I can't happen here. Let me, let me, let me make that important caveat. 
But now let's go on to say like theoretically. <laughs> yeah. No, I let me I did. That's great. Let me turn to this. I, I would I want to turn to the student questions, but I would just also, you know, recommend for the unsleeping. You know, there are advantages to living in a state where cannabis is legal and I can go around the corner to a black owned uh, dispensary. So just want to say in the interests of sleep. I'm not even that works right now. There's a black owned dispensary around the corner from me. So I'm okay. I'm going to, I'm sleeping. Okay. It's the waking hours I'm concerned about, but let's go ahead and ask a, a question here. Dominic, go ahead. Uh, good morning. Uh, thank you for joining us today. I just have a couple real quick questions about language um, in the context of the Supreme court. Do you think that the word originalism is a dog whistle? And then secondly, because of the dichotomous relationship between neoliberalism and social liberalism, do you think that we should remove the word liberal from our reference of social politics? Yeah, I think those are that, that, interesting. So I don't think originalism starts out as a dog whistle and, and probably doesn't operate as one because I don't think it has... Um, much of a popular resonance. Um, I think originalism starts out as a way to claim that one's interpretation of the constitution is actually determined outside of one's control in a way that, that purports to depoliticize what it is that the Supreme Court's doing, right? Which is, all of that's fancy talk. Um, originalism's bullshit within law. Um, widely used and widely discarded whenever it's convenient. And uh, if you haven't, um, uh, the dean of the Berkeley Law School, Erwin Chemerinsky, wrote a terrific op-ed on originalism in the New York Times, came out, I don't know, five days ago, something like that. Look at that. Great discussion of originalism. Okay. Um, um, what is operating as a dog whistle is our constitutional rights um, uh, Second Amendment, um, uh, activist judges, um, starting with activist judges, activist judges is language that comes out of the South in the 1950s to denounce Brown versus Board of Education. Activist judges was a way for whites in the South to say, integration, that's outrageous. Those folks are, are forcing us to associate with Black people, but oh, I don't have to say it quite that baldly. I can just say, I'm pissed off by activist judges. And then that language of activist judges was extended to judges promoting integration in the North and then to judges, uh, the Supreme Court, um, once it found rights, of, uh, uh, rights to um, um, uh, reproductive autonomy, um, rights to be free from discrimination on the basis of gender. All right, so, so, so activist judges it is operating as a dog whistle term to allow people to oppose racial equality, to oppose gender equality, um, to oppose reproductive white, uh, rights, but then to pretend that what they're really concerned with is judicial integrity and, you know, an interpretive technique, right? Which is like, no, you don't give a shit about judicial integrity and interpretive technique. You don't know anything about it. What you're really opposed to is equality in a way that's capacious and undoes uh, racism and patriarchy and homophobia as, as, as hatreds, as hierarchies, right? So, okay. Um, in terms of liberal, 
I worry about getting rid of the word liberal. I think that the word liberal has been demonized by um, uh, the right. But if we don't claim it, so what? So what happens with a lot of Democrats is they say, "Well, I, I can't be, I can't be liberal," and they're actually they're not just abandoning the word; they're abandoning liberalism, and they end up with with like this neoliberal, you know, we trust the marketplace, not government. Whereas liberalism, and so I, I would use a phrase like New Deal liberalism, or you know, sometimes I don't use liberalism, but I'll use like activist government. But I think that we should be clear. We should say things like, "We believe in New Deal liberalism." the duty of government to work for working families and not for corporate interests, the responsibility of government to regulate the marketplace, uh, to avoid monopoly power, to make sure unions can organize, to ensure workplaces are safe, to keep corporations from poisoning our environment, the duty of government to provide routes of upward mobility, right? That that's liberalism. We need to contest and rehabilitate that term. And part of it is like, um, uh, Biggest liberal out there right now is AOC. I, I, AOC is amazing, but AOC is like, I, I think that I think that like one of her greatest attributes is to make New Deal liberalism sound reasonable again, right? And 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 we can do that, right? Like like the last presidents who won on a really unabashed. Uh, New Deal program was Lyndon Johnson when he promised to use activist government to end poverty within 12 years, and he won in a landslide. It was American common sense, right? And you know that that like common sense was broken through racial division. But what AOC is saying is, of course we're a liberal country. Of course we believe in activist government and its and its duty to distribute the push power downward and outward, right? And I, so, so yeah, I think we, you know, don't abandon the term. I mean, we can use other terms like progressive or whatever, but, you know, liberal is just a much more familiar term and we can't allow the right to constantly trash it. Uh, terrific. Let me uh, click on the next person to raise the, to unmute themselves, ask a question. Geely? So after Monday's confirmation, we now have a 6-3 conservative-leaning Supreme Court where Trump had approved three of those six um, conservative members. And we know Trump also has a habit of saying, "You, I do this for you, you will do that for me. Um, so for example, with withholding um, a stimulus plan for unless he is reelected. Um, and we do have um, evidence that he did say that. So in the case where the, um, the Supreme Court is needed to step in for this election, what is that case? Is it when there's a tie or when the candidate contests the election results? And then if it does come to the Supreme Court, what does that mean for American democracy since um, the Supreme Court is typically nominated by the president? So, yeah, great question. So Amy Coney Barrett is just an incredibly principled person. And I can't imagine a circumstance in which she would think about partisan politics in any of her decisions. Impossible. I mean, you, you, saw, you saw her integrity when she realized that she was going to be confirmed on strict party line um, uh, terms just seven days before an election. And she said, I refuse to participate in this process and I hereby withdraw my name. 
I mean, that, you know, it was a, it was a real act of courage and integrity on her part. Um, or was that the dope? Maybe that was the dope. Maybe she didn't do any of that. I, of course, she's an ideologue. Of course she is. Um, and we can expect her to vote in ways that um, solidly position herself as pro-plutocracy and um, as a culture warrior, pro-patriarchy, pro-white dominance. What is that, you know, what might that mean over the next five or six weeks? It's hard to say. Um, um, the, 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 like Bush v. Gore was this incredibly unprincipled decision. It was just an absolute an embarrassment of a decision. Um, so embarrassing in its reasoning that in, in that decision itself, uh, the court said, this decision doesn't apply to any other cases. This is just completely one-off. Um, now, Justice Kavanaugh has recently cited Bush v. Gore and he's trying to resurrect it as a principle. Um, uh, so, um, uh, you know, and if they rely on it, then, then, then the argument becomes somehow that um, one version of Bush v. Gore is um, um, state courts cannot enter, whatever, it's all technical, but, but this is where, this is where uh, <laughs> I kind of laugh. I, again, I spent 10 years of my life doing doctrine and then I'm like, I'll never get that back because it's not the doctrine. Quit focusing on the doctrine. Don't talk about the doctrine, right? Like, like if you want to talk about the doctrine, we can talk about the doctrine. But, you know, it's post hoc rationalization, right? It's like after the fact, here's how I'm going to excuse, you know, excuse the result that I'm aiming toward. What's the result that I'm aiming toward? A plutocracy. That's the result. That, that's why I'm put on the court. That's what I believe in. Um, that's how I've been. And it's not just completely cynical. If you think about the Federalist Society, these people have been acculturated into the idea that government and society should be run by and for the rich. Um, you think about Scalia and his duck hunting buddies with the Koch brothers and whatnot. I mean, they, they believe in a society run by and for the rich. What does that mean for democracy? Here again, this is all about the sort of mass movement that pushes the Democrats, um, if possible, to unpack the courts. We must, and I'm using the phrase unpack rather than pack because the courts are already packed. Packed by Trump uh, at the Supreme Court and also at the federal court level. We must unpack the court. And, you know, and, and, for, and for Biden-Harris, you know, the, the, the choice is unpack the court or see just about everything they do undone over the next few years. Then those are those, them's the alternatives, right? So which one do you want to do? Um, but again, that's another, uh, you know, um, uh, another instance in which so much depends upon popular pressure on the Democrats. Great. I, I'm, just to follow up on that question, what could you just imagine what a path towards the Supreme Court? Like, you just lay it out for us. I mean, you are the constitutional scholar in the room. Like, how does this end up in the Supreme Court such that Bush v. Gore gets a, re a, a revival? Petition for, petition for an emergency stay from some lower court decision. So you're, you're seeing it over and over and over again. The, the, the Republicans and the Trump administration has really already perfected this. Um, 
I saw some recent stats. It's something like the, 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 the court has granted four times as many emergency petitions in the Trump administration than in like the previous three administrations combined, right? But so um, uh, file a lawsuit, uh, challenge it. In, so so what will happen is states will pass a law, then the law will be subject to interpretation by state courts. Um, then there'll be a lawsuit to challenge the state court decision in federal court. Um, and then um, there'll be an emergency position, a petition to reconsider the federal court decisions. And it, I mean, it can, and, be, and then uh, uh, part of what's happening is emergency petitions because they're decided on an emergency basis need not um, be accompanied by a reasoned signed decision. They can be, they can be decided on the basis of just like an unsigned, um, um, you know, upheld, overturned. Right. And so, yeah. All right. Um, yes. Thank you. So let's, uh, let's go to, to Avery. Um, hi, Professor Lopez. Thank you so much for speaking with us today. This has been super informative and very interesting. Um, my question for you had to do with the notion of this abandonment of the um, this idea of colorblindness as it pertains to our education system. I was wondering, ideally, how you would suggest our education system goes about teaching this ideal of racial awareness? Yeah, yeah that's a great question. So um, uh, one thing I would say is, hey, pay attention to Prop 16, right? So Prop 16 right now is trying to restore affirmative action, restore uh, race and gender conscious decision-making uh, in the context of admissions and hiring. Um, you know, the way I would frame that um, is we must create an integrated society. And the only way to create, well, or, or let me, or sorry, let me, we must create social solidarity, especially across race lines. We cannot do that unless we create an integrated society. We cannot do that unless we are race conscious. Right? And then that, that's, what, that's what we're trying to do. So one answer is, hey, we need to recommit to the idea of integration because you, you've seen, um, uh, even, even liberals have largely abandoned integration as a goal in and of itself. And I would say integration is probably the most important thing we could be pursuing because that's what you need to do to create social solidarity. You can't, you can't create social solidarity through segregation in, in a segregated society. That's one answer. Here's another answer. I worry that a lot of the way that we in the education field, and, and I'm including sort of ethnic studies, American studies, um, but I'm also including that not just at the college level, but also at the K through 12 level. A lot of the ways that we've approach that subject is through a focus on discrete communities of color and their experiences with white racism. And, you know, and, and again, this is, I used to do this. In fact, to a certain extent, I still do. I teach race in American law. And then if you look at race in American law, I'm like, here's a section on slavery. Here's a section on Native American genocide. Here's a section on manifest destiny and anti-Latino racism. Here's this section on the Asian Exclusion Act. Da, 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 right, right. So, but if you think about that framework, it's, it's familiarizing 
people with very important aspects of our history, but also strengthening the idea that racial justice is primarily in the interests of people of color. Um, and that, and that, that whites are implicitly at fault and are to blame. Um, and one way that's manifest is, um, you know, I can count on two hands over the, over the last 20 years, the number of straight white students I've had. Because why, why would they take race in American law? They, you know, they don't want hate. They don't want hate in their lives. They don't want to be hate, right? I mean, it's like, so I, I actually think that this race class approach needs, is, is a very important way in which we should shift how we talk about um, racism in our ethnic studies, American studies curriculum, K through 12 and college. Um, who knows whether, whether we'll do this because we as a society are scared to death about talking about class conflict and about rule by the rich and about the power of the greedy few. Um, and yet, if we taught racism through that lens, then it would allow more people to see that, that um, uh, racism threatens all of us, that we all have an interest in learning about it, that all of us have an obligation to learn about racism and to work to overcome it. Um, uh, and th that that obligation proceeds not just because it's the moral thing to do, but because it's the pragmatic thing to do for all of us, right? So to take that race class approach um, and to use it in the context of, of ethnic studies, both at the college level and at the K through 12 level. All right, great, thank you. Let's go to, uh, that was a good question. Let's go to uh, Sam here. Hi, thank you so much, Professor uh, Haney Lopez. It's been a really, really amazing, interesting um, talk today. Um, personally, I definitely wanna take your class at some point. So <laughs> if I get the chance, I'll definitely try to take it. Um, but I just wanted to ask about, you've talked about a couple terms, whether it be, um, like pro-business, um, law and order, originalism, um, and extending it outside of what you've talked about, like terms like pro-life or things like that, where um, I think it was our, our guest lecturer last week who talked about the term like winning the narrative and how um, the right in certain ways has won the way we talk about things and framed them in a certain way. Um, I just wanted to ask if you thought uh, what do you th think are the reasons behind um, the left sort of conceding ground on these issues and how um, how we get back um, into having the conversation on on terms that aren't inherently um, slanted towards the right, if that makes sense? Sure. I mean, it's a good question. I, I think that the, I think that the, um, there are two different dynamics going on here. So one is to understand what's happening with the right and there it's important to recognize that the right came to see clearly in 1963 that to win back power, they needed to lie to the American population. Right? It's just like Barry Goldwater. He's like, hey, I'd, I'd like to destroy the New Deal, but people love the New Deal. What should I do? Let me lie to the American public and, and um, promote racism and racial resentment. Right? And, and this, this manipulation, this, this intentional effort um, to um, use language to create a, a, a sort of an overarching lie about what this party was interested in doing leads to 
tremendous sophistication in the realm of language and narrative, or you know, you might use a more pejorative term, the the the, the in, in in the art of propaganda, right? That's they they're like, okay, we're gonna lie to these people. How do we do it? Um, and, and, and nobody more so than Donald Trump, like like Donald, you know, and and, and now there's all this stuff coming out where where like after he meets with the white evangelicals, he's like, can you believe these people, right? Like, he's all about manipulating people, telling people the stories they want to hear. Well, if if that's what you're about and you're self-conscious about it, then you study it, then you invest in it, then you perfect it, right? And so you 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 get the Frank Lentz's and the focus groups, but you also get Fox News, you also get Steve Bannon and Breitbart, um, the alt-right, which is just white nationalists, but sanitize, right? Thinking about how to sanitize, how to distort. Practice something for a while um, while being heavily funded to do so, you get pretty good at it. That's what's happening on the right. What happened among the Democrats is the Democrats didn't know what they were for anymore, right? Which is different from like, hey, we got to lie to people. It's like, we don't know what our values are anymore. We used to be for civil rights, but now we're getting our butts handed to us when we say that we're for civil rights. So we got to abandon that. And then by the time Clinton is elected or runs, it's pretty clear that civil rights and labor rights and economic populism are, are inseparable. So they abandoned that too. So, so here's the Democratic Party, the party of the working family that no longer believes in human dignity, equality, or working families. So what do they say they're for, right? And of course, if you don't know what you're for, you, you just sort of wander in the wilderness message-wise. I mean, you know, uh, um, uh, Clinton was probably more successful as a messenger because he knew that he was going to lie too. He was like, I'm going to win by imitating the Republicans. So he was on point because he was like, I'm going to lie. I'm going to talk about ending welfare as a way of life and cracking down on crime. But how you, you know, but, but Barack Obama was like, um, I'm going to message in response to the tremendous crises and the, you know, this, this, the great recession and the endless wars. And I'm going to say, you know, um, uh, hope and uh, yes, we can. And right. But like, but what are you for? What are you for? So the challenge for Democrats now is not how to be good at narrative. That's not the primary challenge. I think the primary challenge for Democrats is what are y'all for? And again, you know, to, to, to lift up AOC, she's so good because she knows what she's for. <clears throat> Bernie Sanders resonated with people because he knew what he's for, right? Now, once you know what you're for, then you can say, okay, you know, and, and what's the best way to express this? Well, you know, how do I frame this? What's the, what's the language that resonates with people? But the big challenge for, and, and this is part of, the, part of the thing about race class, race class is not just, here's the left's answer to Frank Luntz. Race class is like, here's what we're for. We're for a party that, that takes care of working families, and that recognizes that working families are beset by greedy elites who stoke racial division. And so we're beset by scarcity, by poverty, by government violence against communities of color. 
we want to end those things and we want to create a society in which all of us have dignity and can thrive. And, what, and once, once Democrats can figure out that that's what they're for, great, then let's talk about messaging. Terrific. Um, I think we're just about out of time. I wanted to ask a, a, a brief, if quirky question, just to share my screen here and um, and pitch you a question, which, uh, you know, which is this question. Um, how are you doing in terms of getting uh, a, uh, a dog whistle emoji out of um, the tech companies? So far, not so good, but but hey. I'm sure there's a lot of talent in the classroom. We need one. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, you, you see this. Um, but I, it is, I mean, there are Twitter accounts that is like racist dog whistle that just retweets this stuff, you know, quoting woof, 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 woof. Yeah. Um, I'm just wondering, like, I mean, you know, obviously this term is older that, you know, there's a sort of long history to it. I, I would have played the Beatles record in which they include a dog whistle at the end of the Sgt. Pepper's album and things like that. But I'm just wondering, like, you know, like this is a term really of your kind of popularization. You've really turned this into an analytic and um, and and are responsible for its its broad spread. So I, I think in that sense, I, I want to both congratulate you on your uh, your work and thank you for actually bringing us an effective weapon with which to fight back against the kind of explicit lies and attempts to divide us that um, do indeed shape uh, our national politics. I'll let uh, Sorrow offer the last word though here. Just wanted to say thank you so much, uh, Professor Lopez for joining us, especially six days before the election. Hopefully we'll see you out in the streets on Wednesday. <laughs> <laughs> see you in the streets. <laughs> yeah. Oscar Grand Plaza, noon, uh, Wednesday the 4th. Oscar Plaza, hypothetically, just hypothetically, <laughs> see you Wednesday. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we'll be there no matter what happens, frankly. I mean, the mobilization is called. There's no, there's no scenario in which we don't end up out there. So um, thank you very much, uh, Ian. Thank you. This really has been outstanding. Great. Thanks to thank both you. of you. Thanks to the whole class.